uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, as we journey through Nehemiah, remember we, what we're seeking to do is uh, see how God, through his spirit, put down, put down for us uh, what Nehemiah was doing physically uh, in, in helping rebuild the walls around Jerusalem after the exile where uh, God's people are kicked out of the land because of their idolatry, their faithlessness. They're coming back, and Ezra brings them back, and then, well, Zerubbabel and Ezra, then Nehemiah is bringing uh, people back, but, but the rebuilding of the structure around that really provides a safe place for God to meet with his people in his place has been destroyed for a long time. And Nehemiah has his heart uh, stirred in order to rebuild physically what's around in order to see spiritually God's God's presence experienced by his people. And that's what we want. That's what our discipleship is about. That's what our Christian lives are about, is us being in God's presence with him and experiencing that in ongoing, ever-increasing, joyful ways. Uh, And today what we'll look at is the aspect of what Nehemiah did in his evaluation of how things were uh, helps us understand the evaluation of our own lives. So let's look at God's word in Nehemiah. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me, What I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by night in the valley and expected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. 
Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us fill the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit, please illuminate our hearts to receive your word. Amen. If you look up the word sincere that we use a lot in our vocabulary, it's used as the tagline when we're writing a letter or an email that we sign our names. This came about uh, from uh, a few hundred years ago during the Renaissance as people, as, as sculptors were making uh, their sculptures out of stone. If ever they made a mistake, there was the temptation. This is not like, oh, let's just get another canvas. This is marble, granite, and you break off a nose you got to start over. So what they did is some who wanted to be underhanded would put wax on wherever the blemish was that they had chipped too much stone off and they would paint it to look like the marble or the granite. And as this was happening, uh, the ones who were truer <clears throat> said, hey, this, my sculpture doesn't have any wax on it. The two Latin words they would put on that were sincere, which literally means without wax. So that's why they would write sincere and sign their names. So let's think about it in our Christian lives. In a very real way, we walk around with some wax. We walk around covering our blemishes so nobody can see or we don't feel awkward. But what we're doing is getting comfortable and used to living fake Christian lives where we don't really... We don't really delve into who we are. And, and as, as Kerr was describing his own experience, and my experience too, the things in our hearts that, we, that are dark, that we don't even know are, are uh, hampering our ability to experience God's presence. They're disrupting it. We try to ignore, avoid, but we end up just sabotaging everything we're about. And it just gets miserable. Christian life gets miserable. And so some just give up. I'm just tired of fighting, tired of, tired of faking it till I make it. There is no faking in the Christian life. So enough needs to be enough. And I think that's what Nehemiah was gently bringing in his experience that we read in this chapter. We need to move on from our lesser experience of God's presence to be captured by his heart in order for him to fulfill his great and glorious purpose for us. God has ever-increasing fellowship, ever-increasing joy for us in our relationship with him. And a proper step of our recognition in our fellowship and prayer is that God tunes us to his heart through our sincere evaluation, our honest, our without wax evaluation of how things are. Sincere evaluation doesn't hide from the truth, but experiences 
the freeing power of truth. And sincere evaluation assesses the powerful grace of God and really accesses, accesses the powerful grace of God to order our lives in his freedom and joy. So what we see in the first part is there is, in Nehemiah's experience before the, the king, there is grace to be experienced for the journey. And that's, that's what Nehemiah experiences going before the king. But he does that by, by facing a fear. The first thing he does is wait for God's timing. He is praying, he's persistent, and he's devising, he's getting from God a plan of action. Nehemiah prayed, he waited for God's timing. The, the distance between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is four months. So he's praying and waiting and asking. But listen, he's not just waiting for a convenient time. He was waiting for God to stir faith in his heart for the task before him. It was an intimidating situation that he was looking at. And we so often, we can be too easily seeking convenience over our obedience. Is there ever a convenient time in the Christian life? I don't, I don't really, none, none are coming to mind in my own life. Is there, but we wait for convenience. It's just not right yet. It's just not time. It's, we, it just, let's just wait. And we look at Gideon and put out our fleeces constantly. There was a time where Gideon put out a fleece, he put on another fleece, and then he had to go to action. But we just keep on putting fleeces out there. Just confirm, God. Just confirm. Confirmed it 18 times. It's time to, time to go. We look for convenience. God wants our obedience. Nehemiah waited on God to give him wisdom and discernment for a plan. But he said, when he's before the king, he says, he is afraid. Then I was very much afraid. See, most of the time we face situations where the, the, we fear these situations where the worst that can happen is somebody tells us no. We hate that, right? I don't want to ask. They'll just say no. Nehemiah is literally facing death. Said, I've never been sad in the king's presence before. Why was that important? Because everybody around the king, kings were allowed to be fickle people. They could fly off the handle at a whim. They were allowed to be that. Nobody else was because everybody else had to keep the vibe good. So if the king was sad, he needed to walk into something that was going to lift his spirits. And if he was joyful, he certainly didn't want to be around anybody that would draw him down. So you you could not throw off the emperor's groove. You could not do that ever. And remember, this is the same king that halted the rebuilding of the temple 13 years prior with Ezra trying to rebuild the temple and the walls. He just, same guy, sent, well, Sanballat, Tobiah, those are titles for the rulers there. They're not actually the people. But by God's providence, this same king left a loophole in his own decree. He said, it needs to stop until I say it can start again. Nehemiah knows that because all that's written down. See, God, God continues even through the actions of of rebellious people sometimes, God continues to superintend over all the situations of our lives to bring about his purpose of his presence, which is our greatest good. We can see there's a study done that looked at the biggest fears over the past that people deal with over the past several hundred years. The biggest fears that we face are death, guilt, and meaningless. 
And you can tell Nehemiah probably rehashed all of these. He certainly was fearing death. We know that. But he was also, in chapter 1, we see that he's taking on a guilt of of sinfulness and maybe doesn't want to be reminded of that by the king. Well, if your people would just behave, then none of this would have been even on the, 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 the landscape. But then he... He's battling with this meaningless. Do I, do I even, I'm, I'm just a nobody. I know I'm a cupbearer to the king, but is this, is this really going to help? Worrying about his own significance to bring about change. These are the same fears we face, but we talk ourselves out of what God wants to bring into our lives because we, we, we just think, we begin to believe the fears rather than the truth of who God is. But in this is a very unique hint of help for Nehemiah. In the parentheses, if you look in in verse 6, the queen sitting beside him, this could have been Artaxerxes. Again, that's a title. Artaxerxes, the title Xerxes is the son of Xerxes. Um, The queen could very possibly have been Esther. Esther chronologically doesn't, it takes place before Nehemiah. It should be in between uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, but I'm not sure why it happens. The book of Esther is after Nehemiah in our uh, Bibles. So we, timeline-wise, we think it could happen after. after uh, Esther could have been as young as 14 when she was chosen by Xerxes to be a wife, which now she would have been in her mid-40s. So, Artaxerxes is, relationally speaking, Esther's stepson. Maybe he just kept her around because she cared for him and nurtured him and was there. If this is not Esther herself, but it's just unique that Nehemiah would say the queen was, was sitting there because during these festivals that the, uh, the Persian kings would do, they... A lot of times they weren't together, but this could have meant it was a private audience that he went into to talk to the king. But either way, Nehemiah probably knew Esther, and Esther was able to say, Hey, bud, remember what God used me to do? The whole audience before the king, a barge in, God can be on you. So even when Nehemiah is facing his fear, he's got somebody else coming alongside. And that's what God does. He brings others alongside of us so we never face anything alone. I appreciated uh, Chris's instinct this morning. And I think it's a spirit put there. We are not to face things alone. We're not to do those alone. God wants to bring people to support us and to help us. But when we face our our biggest deal, I think, in life is facing guilt and shame. We avoid the brokenness because of the shame that comes and the reminder of the shame within our brokenness. Shame from our own sins, consequences maybe we're still dealing with because of our own sins, and shame from other sins, what people have told us that was just ungodly. Maybe you were truly a victim of somebody else's abuse. And those just, they last with us. But it's the the situation we most dread is being exposed and shamed when we're exposed in that vulnerability. But Nehemiah wasn't shamed by the king. You know why? Because he wasn't shamed by God. 
There's a New Testament principle that helps us. Remember, the, his prayer is, uh, Lord, help me with this man. He understands who this king is because he understands who God is. But Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, say, the Apostle Paul says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here's God's promise. In the misery of life, in the sufferings that we know God is doing a work in, even though it's miserably uncomfortable, God says, you can trust me because I'm not going to stand you up in front of people and point at you and laugh. But isn't that our fear? That's real. We don't want to be reminded. We don't want to be uh, ashamed. And so we don't hope in God's plan. But the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, you can hope because God's not mad. He's not going to shame you. When shame takes root in our hearts, we live out of what we'll think will give us meaning and purpose. But what we're doing is we're, we're living out man's definition of who we are or our own definition of who we are, rather than God's definition of who we are. We live out of a wrong identity, which results in inferior fellowship. But there's a good hand of grace that comes to Nehemiah, but that's a promise that comes to us as well. But look, the good hand of grace comes after the fear is faced. See, God, God does not give us grace for our imagination. When we imagine going through a situation, it is horrible, right? It is, oh, no, I could never. This, oh, the world would end. But that's before, the, what we, that's before we get into the situation. God says there's grace for you, but that grace is going to come once you walk through with me and with others who are supporting you through that fear. See, we want God to relieve our heartaches and our pains just in a moment. But sometimes he's gracious and he does that. But more often than not, he leads us down into the valley to show us he's there with us. He's with us to heal us and free us. He wants us to experience his grace. But oftentimes we find that grace in the lowest point. In the second, in, in verses 11 through 16, and I'll get back to 9 and 10, because I think they, uh, they coincide with the attacks at the end of the chapter. But verses 11 uh, through 16, there is an honest inventory being taken. Literally, Nehemiah is going around the wall. He's expecting, inspecting things. Uh, and he does it at night. And I was reminded of the poem, Dark Night, uh, which has now become Dark Night of the Soul. Nehemiah toured the wreckage at night. There's some symbolism in this because he's going, there's practical things. He doesn't want to tell people because he doesn't want to give the enemies time to uh, make a plan to come against his plan. But he went at night, I think, he, he, he's going at night to show this is Jerusalem's lowest level. This is their valley. This, because it's broken and it's destroyed. And it's been so for around 100 years at this point. And he goes at night, I think, to, to be able to go with God for God's perspective and to feel God's heart. But we have to remember, what, what Nehemiah does in walking around viewing the wreckage is the exact picture of what Jesus does in coming to earth 
as one of us and living for 30 years, interacting with us in a ministry for about three and a half years, he, was, he looked and observed the wreckage, but he had a plan of all plans to take our sin upon himself on the cross. He, was, he didn't have to ask, and, uh, you know, Nehemiah asked for those wooden beams. Jesus had some wooden beams that he carried with him outside of Jerusalem in order to set us free from sin so, so that we can sing, by his stripes we are healed. And nothing washes away our sins like the blood of Christ. I appreciated um, Kerr having us sing that as we were doing communion. But God is with us in the dark nights of our own souls. He wants to bring the light of his healing to all the dark places in our hearts that we try to avoid, try to ignore. And listen, the, the recurring struggles of our lives usually have their roots in the past. And sometimes we need a perspective. Like he's going around looking at all this wreckage that he wasn't even born when it happened, but yet it's, it's something in the past. And a lot of times we might have to journey into our past with the help and perspective of trusted believers because we're not going to put each other... And I know, sadly, oh, this is just too tragic how people, when they open up to other believers and those believers become the people that point at them and, oh, no, we can't be around you. You can't be around us. Certainly can't be around my children. No, there's something wrong with you. God does not do that. But yet, sadly, people who love God will find themselves doing it for whatever the reason may be. But God wants to, he wants to affirm our identity in him. He wants to reroute our identity in him, even by healing something in the past. And as, as Nehemiah walks, he's viewing broken walls and destroyed gates. And so just for, this is not like, just for, to help us uh, investigate and, and evaluate our own lives. We can think of broken walls because it's bricks on top of one another. We learned from First Peter that we are building, God builds us into his house, one brick on the other. So if it's broken walls, it means bricks are missing. So we can think of those things as the relational aspects, the relational brokenness that we feel in life. And the destroyed gates, the, the things that allow access in and out can be uh, our experience of truth. It's, it's our beliefs about God and our pursuit and obedience uh, for God. And again, these are just ask the Lord for some things to help us along in our lives. So what would be some broken, the broken walls? What are the, the bricks that are out of place? I think these come in our relationships with one another that we have expectations that either have been unmet or just ungodly. A lot of times we deal in our relationships with people, we have unmet expectations or crushed expectations. We had this desire for this to happen in our relationship with that person, and it's gone. It's nothing. It's broken. There's nothing around. We have unmet expectations of ourselves because I think we have ungodly expectations of ourselves sometimes. And whenever we have these un unmet expectations and they linger and God doesn't seem to answer the prayer for restoration, we can grow bitter. So we have, we have expectations that are, are the broken walls. We also have our acceptance. We elevate our acceptance. Remember, the bricks are touching other people. And so we begin to compare with who we're around and we don't quite like who we're positioned with and so we, we begin to look, well, you're more significant than I am. You're prettier than I am. And, 
So we, we seek significance and purpose and meaning for the, the people around us for their approval rather than looking to God for his heart, how he's placed us where we are. Because only God can satisfy our longings. But if we're comparing ourselves to other people around us, we're chasing appearances. Might be fashion, need to look a certain way. Might be parenting. Parenting has to appear as something. Or just the pursuit of life that we're in, especially in our culture on the North Shore. There's a pursuit of life that you, you can afford and you should be able to afford anything you want. We need to be careful. There's the toys that we, or the, the experiences that we build up. They're helpful. God wants us to experience those things as a reflection of his goodness and our, our worship to him that he gives us those experiences to see something beautiful on the other side of the world and to experience laughter and, and, and fun in our families. God wants that. But when it is elevated to the sense of, I, I want these things because I want to be seen a particular way by people, then we think it's producing an inferior relationship, fellowship with God. But anytime we chase appearances, I'm remembering Psalm, or Psalm, Proverbs 31. I forget it, I'm botching it in my head. You know, beauty is vain, that one. <laughs> Whenever we're chasing beauty and appearance, we're, just, it's, we're walking through a desert and convinced we see water up ahead. When it's just a mirage, it's not there. It's just a glimmer of hope. But broken walls produce gaps that allow the enemy to have access into our minds and hearts. And when we listen to him long enough, we'll cave into our sinful thoughts, which lead to sinful behaviors. So there's broken walls in our relationships. There's destroyed gates. The disciplines and the doctrines that we walk out, are, are, the disciplines are our spiritual pursuit of God. Prayer, worship, Bible intake, preaching, receiving Live preaching, evangelism. How about this one? Rest. These are what we do in our pursuit of God. It means we are doing that from, if it's absent, then a gate is gone. If it's insufficient, then that door of the gate is bent a little bit and doesn't close properly, but it needs to be shored up. And this is not so we can... We can check off boxes of our performance and think that, oh, God just looks at us and he's so pleased with how we do. We're never pleased with our spiritual disciplines. That's just always going to be there. We're never going to pray enough. We're never going to read the Bible enough. But are we pursuing God enough to where our lives feel settled, our lives feel connected to the presence of God? And there's also doctrines, the things that we believe. Because if we're believing the wrong things and pursuing the wrong things, trying to get in our experience with God, then we're, again, giving the enemy access to our minds and our hearts. Here, in, in terms of the doctrine of what we believe, here's how I would ask you to think about it. Do your thoughts of God put more emphasis on his power or your power in your life? Is it his power or willpower? A lot of times we, we're walking out of our own self-sufficient, our willpower. Just, or maybe we're trying to get enough determination to do something. So it really is the truth of what you believe setting you free. Because that's Jesus' promise. You'll know the truth and the truth 
will set you free. There's a, a swelling popular thought, and it's, man, it's getting to be a tidal wave into our culture, especially with Christians, I'm finding more and more, that our personal experience and what we, what we feel personally is the truth that we live by. So truth is found on the inside, and it gets to be everybody has to accept what we're feeling. And when we come in, in line, uh, interact with Jesus, Jesus says, no, uh, if you look more on the inside of you, you're not going to find something that's nice and pretty. You're actually going to find something that's pretty ugly. And it's, it's bad. Because out of the heart come all the sinfulnesses that we experience in life. The truth is not somewhere deep inside of us that we need to unlock somehow. It's outside of us. The truth is Jesus. And the good thing about Jesus, the great thing about Jesus, he wants us to have his truth. And only his truth will set us free. As Nehemiah is walking around, he's no, walking around, he's no doubt compiling a materials list as well as uh, the people, the manpower that's going to be required to rebuild the wall. See, whatever we think following Christ will cost us, insisting on our own way will always cost us more. When we submit to God, his taking the time, the strength, the effort to address our inferior fellowship, that is a, there's a cost there. But doing it our own way is always going to cost us more. And then we have 17 to 20, but also we take 9 and 10 with this. This here is now strength to rebuild. Uh, Nehemiah tells the people, here's the plan. And they respond with a zeal. They respond with wanting to connect and let us, let us rise and build, they say. Because they saw a vision. And, and we need to see that vision as well. And like Nehemiah saw it. Understand that God wants what he wants to accomplish in our hearts. So we have an unhindered access and experience in his presence. There is good work for all of us. And no one is too damaged to do the good work. This good work's not in our strength. Not in our determination, not in our willpower. The good work happens when we trust his power and his truth. There is good work of all, in all of us and for all of us in the mission of kingdom advancement. And there is freedom from the derision that the enemy and people will bring. Even if, if it's a voice in our own heads. So they see the vision. They now embrace the vision. Let us rise and build. Those who heard Nehemiah were settled to do the necessary work. And these, and this helps us, these were the same people that have been staring at the same destruction for decades. How often do we look at something and it never changes and we pray and nothing happens? And we just are reduced to, well, just a fatalism. Just God's going to do what he's going to do. He doesn't need me. No, they had a renewed zeal for the work that God had for them. And look, zeal is not just for new believers. We all should be renewed in our zeal to go after God. But listen, when we see the vision and embrace the vision with zeal, there's going to be an attack. Listen, when there's an attack, don't worry. God is still in control. God is still doing his work. So we have to hold the vision in the, in the face of opposition. Opposition will arise every time we commit our way to the Lord and want to obey him. It will arise. From in our families, 
in our workplaces, it, in our own hearts, it will arise. The opposition was stirred up in verses 9 and 10, but then we don't hear about what they're saying till afterwards. It's stirred up and, and when Nehemiah returned with an authority that was over their heads. He's got letters from the king, but they're the local authorities. Whenever there's the conflict of authority, there's opposition. We live under the authority of the king, not, not man's authority, not Satan's authority. We have the authority of Christ. So when we show up with that, the enemy is going to be a little perturbed. When we come against Satan with the highest authority of Christ, he will attack. And this attack is usually in the form of shame. The local leaders attack the character of Nehemiah by asking him a question. And it's a crucial question that appears in other moments in the Old Testament uh, when there has been disobedience. The question is, what are you doing? In the other locations in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve have sinned, what does God say? Adam, what have you done? When Pharaoh uh, can't stop the Hebrew midwives from killing all the newborn babies, he asks them, what have you done? When Saul uh, disobeys Samuel's command from the Lord to spare everything, he thinks by doing these sacrifices, his heart will be made right with God. Samuel says, Saul, what have you done? Same, and that, that comes with a guilt and a shame. And the enemy loves, the devil himself loves to point at us and say, what are you doing? What have you done? Are you doing these things? you think you're going to be better this time? You, you're rebelling still. You're going to rebel against the king. And, and they're trying to bring in, hey, hey, this is the real king you should be serving because he can put you to death. And Jesus says, don't fear people who can put you to death. Fear God who holds the destiny of everybody's eternity. Fear him. Serve him. And Nehemiah answers, I love his answer. He is ready for this attack. He answers with the only authority that will win. God's authority. God's going to make us prosper. I'm not really dealing with you guys and what I'm seeing. God's going to make us prosper. And you watch this. You watch what is going to happen. The local leaders had no authority from God. They had no portion or right or claim. And listen, no one has portion or right or claim over us except Jesus himself. Nobody can say shame on you. You know why? Because God doesn't tell us that. We are rescued from that. We may need perspective in our lives if we're living under man's authority rather than fully under God's authority. But we go into that partnered together to see the glory of God and his presence invade our lives because Jesus did the work. Jesus went to the dung gate, the poo-poo gate. How'd you like to be that guy? We're going to learn in chapter three, there was somebody assigned that lived right by the dung gate. I think that's the person spiritually that helps everybody in their mess. The dung gate was what they opened because everybody's refuse went out that down into the, uh, the, uh, the valley, which was Gehenna, which Jesus referenced as they had fires there. People would live there, sadly, in, in a lot of countries. You see people living in those areas. That's what Jesus was talking about. There was a, he goes to the filthiest in us. And he rebuilds and he restores and he heals. So we can walk in his freedom. 
That's what he has for his church. So I say to us, let's rebuild. Let's rebuild where God wants to shine a light into our hearts, maybe something we've avoided or tried to ignore or think we have gotten over. If there's patterns in our lives that keep recurring, we've got to ask the question, God, have you sufficiently touched that area of me? If I still respond the same way, if I still struggle with the same sinful patterns, God, have you really touched? Look, the sinful patterns in our lives, that's, that's the leaves on the tree. There's a root that we need to get to. And God wants to restore that. So we will, we will be strengthened. We need to visit and identify the gaps and the gates in order for us to walk in the freedom and the healing he has for us. Amen. And let's commit to do that together. Lord, thank you for the glory of your presence, the glory of your word. God, I trust that through the power of your spirit, we have been affected, but, but not just affected to feel good about maybe some uh, a hill that we need to conquer this week. It's just more than that. God, we pray that that would happen, that you give us quick grace to understand how you're moving and working with your good hand in our lives, but ultimately Jesus. We want to submit to your authority to experience the healing that you have for us. You, you lift the brokenhearted and you bind up wounds. Please, we put ourselves before you to see that happen. Have your glory accomplished in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's be reminded of now that we've received the word, there's obedience before us. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen.